I haven't done an interval in seven years. I want, I actually want to get a coach and I want to get a dietitian. I want to see what I can do if I take it seriously in 2024. That was Ted King and this is Gravel Racing with Massbank. Welcome to the show. Hope you are doing well and hope your training is going according to plan. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to thank all of you who has taken out time to send me messages about last week's episode with Parfos. If you haven't listened to it yet, I would definitely recommend that you do so after listening to this one. Today's episode is a talk with living legend Ted King, a former world tour rider turned gravel pro, actually two-time winner of the Dirty Cancer, what is now known as the Unbound, just to name a few of his accomplishments. In this episode, you will hear a bit about uh, Ted's time as a world tour rider. You'll hear about him moving from the road to gravel. You will hear uh, about his plans of winning the Unbound again in 2024 and a bit about the evolution of uh, gravel from uh, his perspective. And much, much more actually. Um, yeah, so without taking up any more of your time, I just want to thank you all for listening. And uh, yeah, enjoy. Ed Gang, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. Good to hear. Have a bit of a time difference. You are on the time zone of York, right? Where, where are you living at? That is correct. We live in Vermont, which is the next state east of New York. Uh, still pretty far away. I think we're about four hours from New York City. But yeah, it's not bright and early. I have two kids who are under four years old, so we've been awake for a long time today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know the drill. I have a, I have a son. He's uh, seven months old now. So uh, nice. yeah, m- most days it's before six o'clock. But uh, yeah, well then you get the day started. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, you 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 operate the same number of hours just at a different part of the day. Yeah, yeah. Because at nine o'clock or something, you're you're ready to pass out. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, what about uh, the weather in Vermont? Have you uh, do you have uh, like uh, shitty weather like we do in Denmark? Is uh, is it raining and cold and stuff? You know, today is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Blue sky. I'm looking out the window right here. Blue sky, not a cloud in the sky. It is in Celsius, um, probably negative three degrees. Oh, it is, and it's completely white. We we got a lot of un- well not a lot we got probably i don't know two or three centimeters of unexpected snow yesterday it was one of these one of these storms that the weather's not even in the forecast and yet it still s- dumps down snow so um yeah it's it's effectively early winter but this this snow will melt it'll warm up it'll be you know 10 degrees celsius in the coming days oh, yeah. so it's not it's not terrible just yet okay so how are you uh, riding in uh, will you go ride in uh in weather like uh, today or will you do stuff inside so is it officially off season no it's officially off season um one thing i didn't um tell you before the podcast is i i let me backtrack two years ago right now i broke my elbow uh doing a race called big sugar and i broke it really badly and it's been a difficult two years just dealing with it it's been a lot of pain it's been a lot of uh one surgery in between to remove some of the hardware but then the punchline is on monday so three days ago i had all of the rest of the hardware removed um which was a lot yeah it was i call it a small hardware store worth of worth of screws and plates came out which is great i mean ultimately it's going to allow me less pain more mobility yeah um you know, more freedom in my elbow. So I think that the off season for real started on Monday. Um, I've got about 10 days off the bike entirely. And and I'm just using this time to really reset. Normally, I would definitely go out on a day like today because the snow melts from the road. Yeah, Yeah, it's cold, but you know, you you wear the right clothes and you can get outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's beautiful in a different way. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So how has it been uh, with your elbow, with all the plates and stuff, uh, sitting on your bike for, for many hours uh, in preparation for this? I saw that you uh, had uh, some longer events uh, this year as well. Uh, so yeah. Any problems? Um, yes, but no particular 
there's no exact calculation to when it's going to hurt, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning it's not like, okay, I'm two hours into a ride and that's when the pain begins. It could happen 10 minutes into a ride or it could not happen at all over the course of a four or five hour day. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it's a dull pain. It, it aches. Um, um, it's been a real nuisance. You know I mean? I've, I've been a cyclist for 20 years, so I've had no shortage of injuries or broken collarbones before. And, and, you know, that's, that has been easy as compared to this. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm getting used to, I have gotten used to it. Um, like I said, this happened two years ago. So 2021, uh, I, I dealt with it last year. I dealt with it this year. And, and in speaking with the surgeons, I'm really excited that it's only going to be getting better from here. And, um, yeah. You mentioned that you've been uh, a professional cyclist for for many years, so maybe we could just start to start with getting uh, your story uh, straight for for the people who might not uh, know you already. I couldn't imagine there would be sure. many, but uh, but first of all, when did you uh, like when did you start cycling? I started riding relatively late by professional European standards. Um, I started riding when I was about 19 years old. Um, I had played a lot of sports growing up. I played soccer, uh, as you know, American soccer, um, played a lot of hockey. That was my big sport, ice hockey. I loved that. I played till I was about 18. And then I went off to college and I wasn't playing a sport at the time. You know, a lot of their collegiate sports are a big thing in North America, but I, I sort of decided, okay, now I'm going to focus on academics. And coincidentally, that's where I found this career. Um, my older brother, he's three years older than I am. He won a collegiate national championship. That that was basically the impetus. That was the thing that really got me into riding. Um, and then I had a really good time in college. It 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 was a nice balance of focusing on academics and and the ability to take out my athletic desire on the bike. Um, and worked hard in school and worked hard off the bike. And so that come senior year, four years later. I was I was seeing my friends apply to Wall Street and apply to finance jobs because that's what I had studied also was economics. And it just didn't appeal to me. And, and the pursuit of being a professional cyclist just sounded so much more fun. Um, in the meantime, I'd, I'd ridden with the U.S. national team, which was a, a fun, difficult balance to be in school and then also trying to race in Europe. Uh, but ultimately, the point is I, I graduated in 2005. And then the next year, I, the first job I had was racing a bike. Um, I call it the end of the end of the heyday of, of North American professional road racing. Like we had a really good scene in the, in the nineties and early, early two thousands. Um, I mean, riders were getting paid six figures. Um, there were a lot of teams, there were a lot of races, there were a lot of stage races. So, so you could make a, a viable income and be a professional cyclist in North America. I raced for three years in the States. And then ultimately that the final year, I was the number one ranked rider in North America. And that caught the attention of the folks in Europe. And I uh, went to Cervelo test team and raced for them for two years, which was just this powerhouse operation. Um, so many good riders. And it, it was in a way, I, I think a team ahead of its time. Um, they were really into social media. They were, into presenting the team as a as a collective bunch of really interesting riders as opposed to I feel like the rest of the peloton at that time was was pretty monastic or, or robotic and to show that there was a lot of character and a lot of life and a lot of cool stuff outside of cycling was was awesome so that was two years of that program 2009 2010 and then the next four years with liquid gas um, which was also a wild cultural shift. That was a very, very Italian program. Um, you know, Van Basso and, and Vincenzo Nibali. Uh, and of course, Peter Sagan was a huge part of that team. Um, and my final year racing in Europe was 2015. And that was with the Cannondale Pro Cycling, which is sort of the, the continuation of Liquid Gas. Um, but the team had a very different feel. That's when Jonathan Vodders had taken it over and it was a, a slipstream operation. And so it very much felt eclectically um, very international as opposed to exclusively very Italian. Yeah. Um, and 
that that was the end of 2015. I, I was 32 years old. I'd raced for 10 years. I thought, you know, I, I've enjoyed this program. I enjoyed the racing that I, the lifestyle that I had. Um, especially looking back the previous four years when I was racing with Peter, you know, that's as a domestique, that's the highlight of your success. You know, we, we won 50% of the races that we entered, which yeah. was just ridiculous. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm never going to have that kind of success again. So maybe I, I, I begin to think about what would be next. Um, and at that point, the term gravel really wasn't a concept. It wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to have a pro gravel career. So I, I really embraced the, the thought of ambassadorship and working with sponsors and continuing working with a lot of the, the sponsor, the companies that had sponsored the teams that had been on for the previous five years, Cannondale, SRAM, for example, as two of the really big ones. And over the next couple of years, that's when gravel really started to take off. And, and so very unintentionally, I was, I was sort of this, this first guy from the world tour who was doing gravel races. Um, the Pelotons, so to speak, were former road racers, former gravel, uh, sorry, former mountain bikers, cyclocross racers. Um, at that point, the scene in North America really wasn't that strong for road racing. So it was just a way that people could compete. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I had success uh, just coasting off residual fitness. I really didn't do any bit of training. <laughs> uh, I loved riding a bike. I'd continue to ride a bike, but like the thought of intervals just made me not thrilled um and you've done your first year of intervals at that point exactly exactly um and now fast forward another seven years since that point gravel is of course very serious and and riders have coaches and have Mm. dietitians and and do intervals and and do all the things that i had done in a previous lifetime so yeah it's an interesting crossroads where we are and that is that is my long-winded story of, of where i am in cycling yeah so so um when you stopped uh, as a professional cyclist as you said you were 32 years old and uh, many people would say that you had you would still have uh, many great years of of racing ahead of you but um i get your point that you've been with uh, peter sagan and uh, everything from there would be kind of not the same <laughs> i guess yeah. Um, yeah but but how did you feel? Of course, you said you, you right away started working with partners that you've had from the team before. Uh, but but um, also looking into like you got your podcast now, you got the YouTube stuff as well. Um, mm-hmm. Because I was just thinking that you go from like having a paycheck uh, to uh, something very different. How was uh, yeah. that uh, change? It was. It was drastic it was a leap of faith Mm. um going into 2016 was this first year of ambassadorship so to speak and a few months prior to 2016 i had signed the contract to know that i would have a paycheck in 2016 it wasn't um it wasn't as much as i was making in the world tour but at that point there were just three or four partners who said yeah we we like this idea of you know, what we call now the privateer or the, the independent rider. And I'd taken a page out of um, Jeremy Powers' book or Tim Johnson's book. Those are two really good, I mean, America's best cyclocross racers for basically the previous decade. And, you know, cyclocross is, it's an independent program for the most part. Um, you know, you piece together your team, your mechanic, your sponsors. And and, and I just, those guys are, are contemporaries, they're friends, and they're people I looked up to. And I saw that there was this possibility. Um, social media had begun to to really boom. I mean, never in my life would I think that I would be making my income through social media, but here we are, and and it's obviously a, a instrumental step. Um, it's the gig economy, right? It's putting together all these different gigs that allow allow a, a viable income. Um, my my podcast, I think, started in two thousand eighteen. The YouTube videos, I think, started a few years after that. Um, it's just like building, uh, building on what you can kind of offer as well to to your partners that you... Exactly. One, one thing is Instagram and uh, Facebook and stuff, and that gets old as well. Um, yeah. And, and uh, my experience as well with, with podcasting uh, is that the different way of reaching people that uh, then you, you get from 
post on Instagram. Uh, they they listen in a different way. Of course, they listen in a different way because you don't listen sure. to to, a, to an Instagram post. But but it's easier to uh, make people react on on what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I think you know I was never I was never an extraordinary cyclist in North America. I was. I was very good. I was good at time trialing, road racing, and 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 a decent sprinter, and that allowed me enough points to, like I said, be the number one ranked rider at the end of 2008. And then you go to Europe, and it's a whole different ball of wax, and and you know everybody's extraordinary at everything. Um, what I had done from the beginning, very unintentionally, during my three years racing in in North America, and then I continued this in in the World Tour, was I had a blog. You know, I started a blog in 2006 that I continue to this day. And I just talked about uh, what life was like, what travel was like, what what all these things pieced together um, allowed me this lifestyle. And and it was for transparency. It was for simplicity. It was instead of writing 16 emails at the end of a race to various family and friends, it's like, oh, I can just write this blog and people can check in. And that grew and that continued to grow. And and you know, my point about not being extraordinary cyclist is I, I created this following all through my professional career as a result of telling the story of what it is to be a professional cyclist. And I still really enjoy writing. I think we as a, as a society like the immediacy of a social media post and, you know, you look at a quick sentence or a quick photo and, and you take that in, but I still like the long format writing. Um, so I like, you know, I like conversations. I enjoy what we're doing right now. Mm. I enjoy the transparency that that's provided through the videos that I do. So yeah, it's, it's, it is an evolution. Um, it's fun to see and react to what is popular and what is, what is making a difference. And it's fun to, to not purely have the blinders on and purely be riding and racing a bike. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, because I was also just thinking that in, in some ways you were also ahead of your time, I think, uh, more and more people, it's some some people have like a very like it's it's not uh, very personal the way they portray themselves on social media and so on. But uh, you were like very much uh, I guess a first move I could imagine uh, being a professional cycling uh, cyclist. Uh, I, I don't think there were too many people having a, a blog at that time. But uh, in mm -hmm. hindsight, it was mm -hmm. uh, a great investment in time um, because you already had a following. Um, yeah. So, um, how did you find the change of like, I guess, um, being a professional cyclist, you're in the team, you have people taking care of everything around you. Um, mm -hmm. How did you uh, like the, you like the change of like being more independent and also having your own relations with uh, companies and stuff? Or uh, how how was the uh, was the change? Uh, I I I have enjoyed it. It's been a nice challenge um i do absolutely need to point out that i continued working with my manager joao correa um he was the person who negotiated my contracts and managed me in my world tour career he he owns and runs corso sports which is wild because that his list of athletes now includes mad peterson and and uh rui costa and um i mean it's just it's amazing the list of athletes that he's working with. I and Jens Voigt are the two, quote, retired athletes that he continues to work with. Um, so it's flattering and it's fun. Um, you know, it's... I I always wanted to stay busy. And so even... I mean, I think that's part of the reason that I would write a blog. You know, you can only train so much and and starve yourself so much and work on stretching so much before you say i gotta have a different outlet um and certainly i'm able to enjoy the the fun parts of life a little bit more here in this gravel career um but my point is i you know i enjoy having the conversations with sponsors and and trying to be creative with the social media posts and and doing all those things mm. we you know, now fast forward to the end of 2023, it's fascinating to me that so many riders have mechanics to go to their gravel races, or there are, you know, teams of three, four, five riders, and therefore they have soigneurs and they have um, staff picking them up from the airport and, and all those things. I mean, it's initially I was pretty apprehensive about it because I, I, I just called gravel the retirement tour, you know, it was, <laughs> it was, it was, 
fun and intentionally fun. And if everyone was taking it too seriously, then then they were doing it wrong. And I I still think it is very fun. And I think that, you know, the majority of people who are racing are, are having a really good time because it's like a really hard group ride. Um, there just happens to be a claim and maybe a paycheck at the finish. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's keeping up with the times to see what, what folks are doing at the same time, you know, I, since retiring from Europe, from the world tour, I've gotten married and become a parent of, of two kids. So that is a, whole different animal when it comes to preparing for races and traveling to races. Um, my wife rides and, and races very quickly herself. Um, in fact, <laughs> I think she was on the podium more than I was this year. So <laughs> she is, she is super fast. I remember seeing Pete Stetna have his bike worked on by his mechanic, big tall Wayne. And I was like, man, that's, that's goofy. And then I think 15 minutes later, I was trying to piece my wife's bike together as we're, as I was literally holding one of my children. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. And this is, this has become serious business and yeah. I get why having a staff is helpful. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and also you know. just uh, maybe continuing down that, uh, I thought that you went straight from the world to, and then, um, did you kind of know about gravel? Did you use uh, you, you know a gravel bike in during the winter or, or anything? Uh, um, I mean, short answer, no. The first event that I did after straight out of Europe was I went to California and and helped Cannondale launch the Slate. You remember that bike? <laughs> it had. I mean, that bike was ahead of its time. It had one inch of travel. It had big, wide tires. At that point, I think there were, it came stock with 35 or maybe 38 mil tires, which were enormous, right? I mean, that that hadn't been seen before. Big clearance, and it was a drop bar bike. Um, so that was 2016, or no, that was tail end of 2015. And it was like, wow, this bike is awesome. I mean, I remember riding it for the first time thinking, why don't people race Paris-Roubaix on this thing? Like, this bike can do it all. It's super fast and fun and dynamic. Um, remind me what the question was. That was my <laughs> it was just uh, uh, did you before you even retired? Did you know there was such a thing as right thirty cancers are now unbound? I knew. Um, I mean, I often will say, and I have a hard time really putting it to words, that gravel. Gravel in 2016 was not, but certainly not what it is now. Like you wouldn't have said, I'm going to be a professional gravel rider. That term is ludicrous in 2016. Um, I don't even think we were really using the term gravel. I think you'd, you'd say mixed surface or mixed terrain or uh, grode. Grode was a popular word, a mix of gravel and road. Um, so no, it was it was on a whim that my friend... Rebecca Rush, who at that point had won Dirty Kansas, uh, I think four times, she said, hey, you got to come to this race in Kansas. And that was March of 2016. And, and I went out there and raced that and won that. And, you know, that started my uh, a successful streak for me in, in Emporia. Yeah. Um, and not to say that 2016 was the start of gravel. I'm I'm wildly aware of that because, you know, I'd done events like the Grasshopper Series, which are really popular in Northern California. Um, that's the kind of event that there's no correct bike. Like at some point in the day, you want to be on a road bike, a mountain bike, cyclocross bike, whatever, in an age before before gravel bikes. Um, but I've been doing those as early as 2008, 2009. Um, so, you know, this, this seed was planted that there were these sort of alternative events that I could do. Um, but certainly at that initial few month period, when I stepped into 2016, there was no intention of saying, I'm going to, I'm going to start racing on this off-road circuit that doesn't yet exist. <laughs> so, so when you, um, you kind of found or, or were told about Dirty Kansas, uh, as it was called back then and went and won the race, uh, first time, uh, which I guess was, uh, Maybe a, a nice surprise, uh, but you were also coming off uh, great fitness, I guess, from being a World Tour rider. Um, mm -hmm. And then you won again in 18, right? Mm -hmm. And 
You've been fourth as well. As well. As well. You, you've been riding it. Uh, have you been riding it every year since 16? I did every year except 2022. Uh, the race is always the beginning of June, and our son was born on June 8th. So I didn't do it that year. And then I, I, I suppose I didn't do um, 2020 as... I got to assume it was canceled. I mean, that yeah, was early pandemic. And I so, I mean, at that point, I created this thing called DIY gravel, like do-it-yourself gravel, and and basically rode the equivalent of the races that I was planning to do that year um, from home. And, and, man, I created this online community. I think we had, I forget now, 12,000 people sign up um, from all over the world and do their races and rides and it was a really neat thing amid the pandemic. And so I say that because for Unbound, I rode the entire length of Vermont, which is a 300-mile ride that took me about 20, I think about 21 hours, um, entirely gravel, really, really undulating, never a flat point. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's sort of the 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 always keep it, new and exciting and different and and you know what's going on up here yeah, how do you yeah. keep uh, things lively like when you got into uh because i guess in 16 there w wouldn't have been much anything called gravel in europe i couldn't imagine not much no, no. uh but it's really taken off uh, the last few years and especially with the icu series and and, and yeah. Now we got a yeah. world championships and stuff, uh, and and now it's pretty easy to find gravel races that you you want to race uh, in Europe and even in in like a small country like Denmark. Um, mm -hmm. But um, but how was the how was the scene, if you could call it that, at that point? Because again, we'll see now of gravel racing. But how was gravel uh, back then compared to how it is now? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, one of the things that hooked me and made me want to come back was even at the finish line in 2016, it was a huge event. And, and what, what at that point, Dirty Kansas now Unbound is really known for is getting people excited about riding who would never otherwise ride a bike. Um, I mean, this race in Kansas has, I don't, it's just, it's not a, a community that I think people would otherwise think of as a cycling community. It's blue collar, it's farming, it's, it's, uh, it's hardworking folks who maybe not, wouldn't have time to go out and recreate. And you go out at the finish line and there's hundreds or thousands of people who are there for this festival atmosphere. Um, and obviously the race has grown and grown and, and, and it's just that much bigger. Apologies for the jet flying over <laughs> No worries. Um, so again, I mean, I, I need to really reiterate that the 2016 was obviously not the start of gravel. There were a lot of things happening before then to have, to have that kind of festival atmosphere. Um, the, there was competition. I mean, there was, uh, Neil Shirley, I want to say, I'm, I, I feel like I misquote this all the time, but I think he's the only American to be on the podium in the U.S. National Road Race Championship, Professional Mountain Bike Championship, and Cyclocross Championship. So he had recently retired from the road, and he was—he had been a racer in, in uh, Dirty Kansas. Uh, Jeff Kabush is a longtime, really fast professional mountain biker. He was racing it. Uh, Josh Berry was a really fast uh, domestic road racer. He was there. Um, Matt Stevens. So, you know, there was a high level of competition. It was just fewer riders. And now, of course, it's become a very international thing. And you basically have a whole peloton up at the front. Um, but yeah, I mean, at that point, you'd pick maybe five or six people that you'd say, okay, this is my competition for today. And then it ultimately became a time trial, whereas now it's a very dynamic road race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could imagine, but also just um, I guess the entire thing around uh, the the race itself, and and although now you have a, like the lifetime series and stuff yeah. too, um, and and I guess there's a lot more commercial interest as well uh, from sponsors and bike manufacturers and stuff. Um, yeah. So so um, and as you said that uh, you kind of decided you wanted to do this. This was kind of like 
thing you did when you retired from from bike racing. Now people <laughs> they they uh, yeah. are more interested in uh, some people are more interested in just only racing gravel than. Um, but um, yeah, it's just how do you see like all of these things uh, around uh, gravel and they've also talked about people bringing mechanics now for for races yeah. and stuff. Um, do you uh, is it like something that you think is uh, a good thing or is it uh, something you might have hoped would I be think, different? I think. And I think initially I was apprehensive and I didn't like it. You know, I wanted people to be independent and uh, I thought it was fun to have to look after yourself. And then I thought there was a lot of babying that goes along with arriving at a race and having your mechanic already have your bike decked out and, and your meal planned out and your hotel booked out. And I think it's... Um, short-sighted of me to say that because this also corresponds with the tanking and and virtual demise of north american road racing my heart's in road racing you know mm -hmm. that's where i i cut my teeth that's where i learned how to be a right bike racer mm -hmm. so i still want to see that succeed and, and do really well um so i think it's it's almost just a uh matter of the times and it's circumstantial and here's where we are and if if the the current demise of road racing means that gravel racing is popular that's fine and that is putting more people on bikes and and the level of seriousness that we're taking it to have mechanics and to even be upset about riders having mechanics is so minuscule in the grander picture of putting people on bikes that you know there that's where i get my perspective um certainly it would be nice to have a mechanic every day i mean i've but at the same time, I've lived that life and I've lived the life of, of, you know, staunch, stark seriousness. And it was great. And I enjoyed it for the most part. And now I'm, I'm able to mix it up and be competitive here and there and, and still come home to a family and uh, have a whole bunch of other things. You know, I got to pay my mortgage with this. And so, you know, it, it is serious stuff. Yeah, it is. Yeah where I earn my income. It's where I pay for my kids diapers. It's where I, yeah. uh, earn a living and have my connections and family and friends. And so it's, I, I do need to realize that it's not just a game. Yeah. Um, do you think that you, know, you talked about the demise of American road racing? Do you think that maybe the interest and hype around gravel could even maybe help the involvement well, of the road racing in America, maybe you see people coming, doing, uh, they want to do the lifetime series and they do great around uh, in, in stuff like that and, and want to try the, the road scene at some point as well and it will end up creating road talent as well. I really like to think so. Um, yeah, I remember early on when I was racing gravel, hearing from, hearing some friends who were coaches at the time and they said they had like 13, 14 year old kids who wanted to be a gravel racer in 2017, 2018. And that thought to me just, it didn't add up because in my mind, you needed to have that previous career elsewhere. You needed to be a road racer, a mountain bike racer. And now fast forward, you know, six years later, I recognize that people are going straight into gravel and creating, trying to create their cycling careers that way. Mm. Um, and I think, I think there is a, a ceiling to it. And, Therefore, if as riders really excel and, and maybe they have enormous physiological engines and they want to go race elsewhere, I think it's really cool that they could explore, you know, what is road racing? What is mm. stage racing? What is the whole European? It's a whole different world over there. I mean, the sport is different than, than what we see in North America. So the, the long story short, yes, I do think rising tide lifts all boats. I think being yeah. interested in any type of cycling is going to expand your interest in all types of cycling. So I think it's awesome. Um, I guess also really just um, if you look at the Lifetime Series, you see a guy like Keegan Swinson who's like he's winning almost everything. Yeah. And maybe at some point it gets uh, boring to, to just line up and win. And um, mm -hmm. wanna, like uh, cycling started in, in Europe and uh, it's uh, it's 
high level over here that maybe maybe of course he went to to the world championship he did he did uh yeah yeah but, but maybe that could be like the first like uh seed yeah, in, in some way that uh, of somebody doing exactly that mm -hmm. yeah and he's he is so anomalous because he is so good hmm. um and he he, you know, his background is as a professional mountain biker. And I, I talked about the demise of American road racing. American mountain bike racing is pretty uh, quiet also right now. And so his timing is perfect and, and he's having tremendous success. And it's really fun to watch as a, as a friend and contemporary, just to see the success he's had. He's dabbled in some road racing. Um, I want to say you could count the number of races that he's done on two hands total. Including the the UCI World Championship in Melbourne last year, or maybe two years ago, um, and then a couple stage races in Utah. So, what he has pieced together, is my understanding, is you know his his income as a result of being America's best gravel racer is going to be far superior than what he's going to get in any first year contract in the World Tour. Hmm. So. At this point in his life, given his age, I want to say his late 20s, you know, maybe he doesn't want to take that leap. He's got another great half dozen years of, of income and, and of success. And, um, you know, there's, it's a peaceful living being in North America as a North American. It's a huge leap of, of faith to go across the Atlantic and, you know, live in an apartment that's not in your home country and not speak your home language and not use your home currency. And, and I don't know, it's just... It's certainly simpler back home, but yeah. who knows? You know, I, I would. I also would not be surprised to see him uh, decked out in a World Tour team in two years, given the success he has. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, yeah. It definitely would be interesting. Uh, yeah, like a, a real you know campaign uh, for for road racing for a guy like. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but but uh, going back to like uh, the lifetime series, is that. Uh, You've done, of course, some of the races, but are you like racing the entire series or have you done that before? I guess not this year. I did not do it in 2023. I did it in 2021. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, in 22. That was the first year of it. I And then I had, uh, I had some health things take me out in that first year. So, yeah, I mean... It, it it could have gone anyway in 2022. It could have been successful. It could have failed. And I think we just see that it's basically become sort of the everything. It's the 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 pinnacle of what gravel racing is in North America. It's what people pay attention to. Um, so it's pretty. I was apprehensive about it too, um, and I think it's pretty cool to see the success that it's had. Yeah, for sure it is. Um... You try. You uh, started, anyways, the extra large uh, edition of uh, Unbound this year, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Is that um, that what you're like going for for now? Is that uh, like the new itch you're you're trying to stretch the kind of almost ultra stuff? You know, I don't know. Um, I think. I think it it made for a good time in 2023 to start doing those things for me. Um, like I said, I had some health stuff that that prevented a big setback in 2022 at the end of 2022. And so as as I was regaining confidence and regaining um, experience racing, doing the the ultra stuff was really interesting to me. Um, I I really enjoy it. I don't think my heart's entirely set in it because it's so crazy. Um, <laughs> I think, I think doing a few of them per year is not is not the worst idea, and and can be really fun. Um, I think the guys like uh, Ulrich, who who just won Tour Divide, and he does so many of these events. I think that's nuts, and I <laughs> applaud what he's doing. And he's obviously a very he's very professional about it because he's having success at so many of them all around the world, but. My goodness, I don't think, I don't know. I mean, I'm sleep deprived at home with two little kids anyway. So, so <laughs> I don't know if I want to go do that as a profession. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was a really good time to do it. I, I know I'll continue to do a handful of them. 
Um, but to be honest, what I'm excited about in 2024 is putting on my serious hat and, and doing a year for real in 2024. Like I haven't done an interval in seven years. I want, I actually want to get a coach and I want to get a dietitian. I want to see what I can do if I take it seriously in 2024. This idea was only hatched about a week and a half ago. Um, it was with my best friend and, and the blessing of my wife that they want to see me do it. So that's breaking you know, news on, on my podcast. That's uh, perfect. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I'm dropping the big news. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm really excited about it, and mm. and yeah, I want to see what I can do if I take this this funny retirement tour really seriously yeah. don't call it the retirement tour anymore so would would that be like a focus on the lifetime series or? i think so i mean yeah. you know we're currently in the phase of applications are in and now we're waiting to hear who is going to be amid those uh i want to say 35 riders 35 male 35 female and even if <laughs> The interesting thing about the Grand Prix is it really favors riders who excel at altitude um, and not to take away anyone who has had success there, but you know, you basically have to do well at Crusher, which is massive altitude, uh, 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 Leadville, which is huge altitude, and the Rad is even at altitude in Colorado. So I don't know my goal specifically. I just started talking, I, you know, this is very early phases. I started talking to a coach literally yesterday to say, Hey, is this even feasible? What are we, what are we working with here? Um, and then do I want to have success at unbound? You know, I would love to win that for a third time. I think that would be the, the pinnacle of what would be, make next year a success even more so than hypothetically winning the overall series. And it would be a kind of cool, uh, to have done it in 16 when everything was kind of different and then could be able to to do it now uh, that'd be eight years later uh, that could be uh, quite something yeah yeah it's crazy the span of time yeah yeah so how um you know you now you say that you want to kind of are taking it a bit more serious start doing uh, a bit more structured training uh, i guess um but but you also um you turn 40 this year? Are you calling me old? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, because I'm uh, I'm not that much uh, younger. I'm 35, so uh, I'll be there. Oh, that's a lot younger. Uh, that's a lot younger. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, but but it was just about, you know, um, I, get, I know it's still early and stuff, uh, but you think there would be, um, of course, there would be a different, your life is completely different, but, but would yeah. you, um, compared to when you were like, racing as a professional, the things you might want to focus on in training, uh, on a kind of approach is a different way? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great, it's a great question to ponder. And it's a, so here are my thoughts. Mm -hmm. As a, as a, as a professional domestique, I was, tasked with being pretty good at everything and you know that was that was really great for my career because i would do mountainous stages hilly races flat stages uh lead outs do a little bit of everything gravel the the physiology that goes into gravel races i feel like you know more and more they're just really long races and you still need to be dynamic you need to have some snap you need to have vo2 but it's a, just a heck of a lot of threshold and tempo work hmm. So, I, you know, I think the, the type of training would be a little bit different. Um, just really focusing on those enormous hours. That being said, you know, it's, it's no wonder that the, the best European road racers, the world tour road racers are the guys who are excelling at gravel, um, at the UCI world championships. It's, it's, it's the task of going really hard for a really long time on slightly loose terrain. And that's what those guys are, are really, really good at. So, I mean, yeah, I could probably take my exact training program from 2015 prior and implement it and say, okay, that would make, that will make me faster. Um, it's just a big switch. It's easy right now from the comfort of my home 
to say I'm going to start doing intervals, it's going to be a whole different thing when it's, you know, <laughs> pressing that lap button and suffering through the intervals. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But I, I guess it'll be uh, maybe it will be a bit like coming home. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Um, normally, I'm not a guy who gets particularly uh, jealous, but I've seen uh, posts and videos of you and. Uh, and your van and uh, the van life you've been uh, been leading. Uh, could you uh, maybe just as a start, just um, what 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 kind of car do you have? What, what are you using? We have a 2021 Mercedes Sprinter van. It's the 3500 XD, which means it is long and it is a dually, so it's six wheels. Um. And we had it outfitted internally for our family of four. Uh, we we previously had a much smaller Sprinter van that we bought used from a friend. We bought that in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, when our when our first child was born, in order to travel all the way across the country and introduce our little baby to her family, who's who is all out in Seattle, which is the polar opposite side of the country. Um, you know, any Sprinter van is large by by vehicular standards so it sounds a little bit crazy to have a second child who is you know this big and then say okay as a result of this tiny little human you need to have a bigger van but the reality was that first van was really built for a family of three and not for a family of four and so we we tried taking some trips and it just wasn't making any sense um at the same time a cycling friend of ours named named john Colbus, who runs a company called ptch which is place to call home um he reached out and he said hey if you are interested in getting a van for your family i think we could work something out and so he's he helped us get you know expedite a van very quickly because it was all happening really quickly and yeah we've got a van that holds it holds two bikes inside two bikes out back it has a shower, it has a toilet, it has uh, heating, it has air conditioning, it has seating for it has seating for as many as five. That gets very cozy. Uh, a sink, bunk beds, so my wife and I sleep up top and the kids sleep down below. Um, yeah, it is, it is awesome. Uh, it is very cozy. We've done a lot of traveling as a family and there's plenty of times that everybody's just in each other's business, but like it's such an adventure and such a cool experience that we wouldn't really trade it for anything. Did you take it for races as well this year? We did. Yeah, we we spent a considerable amount of time um, in California at the beginning of 2023. And so I drove it out there in March and we were basically out west from March, April, May into early June, um, doing events all on the West Coast, doing the grasshoppers, doing uh, sea otter. Then we drove to Gravel Locos in Texas. We drove to Unbound in Kansas. And then we ended up leaving it in Colorado, which is smack in the middle of the country. I did part of Tour Divide. I did not finish Tour Divide. Um, and then went home to Vermont, met my family in Vermont for two months, most of June and July, and then flew back out to Colorado and did a two-month road trip at the end of this year, which was what I, what I really need to qualify because a lot of people are like, you're absolutely insane, is the van is used to get from point A to point B. So we'll drive from, you know, one place to a friend's house or family's houses or a campsite um, or a race, you know, whatever it is. But we're not in the van seven days a week. Um, we really do, you know, with a kid who's one and, and three years old, yeah. You do need to spread out. You 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 know there presents a time in every day that the kids need to run around. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a a very travel heavy year and a really really fun one. Yeah, but it's uh, it's uh, for for both me and my wife. It's definitely something that's uh, high up on our our bucket list is to to be able to have uh, vacations like that and just bring our bikes and. A little sun yeah. and I just go around and having a, a nice time uh, and uh, you know just Europe isn't that big compared to to North America right. and we were mm -hmm. able to 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 really get around 
if we yeah. need the time, of course. Yeah. So um, I was just thinking, um, coming back to uh, the Unbound, mm -hmm. um, how, how did uh, this year was a bit different, right, with uh, the early mod section? It was, and I. This is the year. I guess I didn't finish up. This is the year that I did uh, the Unbound XL. Yeah. And so it's a smaller group. Um, we're racing. We start in the afternoon, the day before the people who are racing the 200 miles. And I ultimately scratched that race. I dropped out after walking for eight straight miles, right in the middle. I think we were at mile like one. I want to say mile 175 to 183. We purely walked, and it was a two and a half hour walk where you're just marching through. And you know, I was in the lead group, and I think there were probably four or five of us. And at first, you're frustrated, and then you're just laughing about how in, how inane it is. And and then all of us got on our phones and started texting our support crews, "Hey, can you pick us up? Hey, can you pick us up? This is just kind of stupid." Um, and, the, you know, I think the biggest reason I quit is because the next week, like literally six days later, I was starting Tour Divide and I didn't think that hiking for another couple hours was going to be my best preparation. Maybe that's incorrect. Maybe I should have continued and that would have been great preparation. Um, anyway, yeah, it was, it was, you know, to answer your question, it was a very muddy year. Um it doesn't take a lot of rain to, to create the mud that is just catastrophic in this in this part of the country. Um, it's almost like when spring and summer hits, it's so dry that, you know, just a little bit of, of, of precipitation is going to make it muddy. And it's the kind of mud that is, it's like peanut butter and it will stick to everything. And it will, um, like I have to throw away my frame this year because there was so much mud buildup on the tires that my chain stays were completely worn out. Uh, and I know that happened to a lot of people in the race, you know, drive trains are completely trashed, chains, derailers, chain rings, brakes, brake pads, pistons. Um, so it's, it's, it's a bit of a bummer. It's costly. And it's a uh, bit, I think it's a shame, especially for people just doing it for fun as well. And, uh, they spend a lot of money buying a bike and they spend a lot of money getting to the race and buying a ticket to the race as well. And then having, uh, because... For the 200, it was almost at the start of the race, wasn't it? Uh, the mud section, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mile 11 or something. Yeah, yeah. so you hardly even started, and then you have uh, maybe your race is over. It's, it's true. I mean, I don't disagree with that. There's the argument that, well, it's all voluntary, and, and if you really don't want to do it, then don't show up. I, I roll my eyes at that because... It is such an investment. If you want to get in, you apply a year in advance. You buy your plane ticket a year in advance. You get your hotel a year in advance, and it's it's costly to not do it. So, you know, it's a bit of a sunk cost. Maybe you should just deal with it and say, okay, the next year is going to be my year. But it's tough. There's no there's no real right answer there. No, 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 definitely not. So, just uh, like my last uh, kind of question is that now you've seen uh, evolvement of of this travel thing for the last eight years or so and and um, things have definitely changed and they changed fast uh, compared to maybe traditional cycling things a bit uh, slower um, mm -hmm. so if we kind of fast forward maybe just a few years uh, how do you think uh, I've seen will, will look uh, um, you're talking about people get bringing mechanics and uh, you're starting to see maybe the of people forming teams and stuff. Do you think you see people going in that direction or? Yeah, I do think, you know, I think it's going to be more serious. I think we're going to see more riders doing it and, and maybe the amalgamation of riders to create teams. Um, what I'm really hopeful for is that it continues to introduce people to riding who wouldn't otherwise ride. Um, and so folks who really don't care about a result, you know, it's, it's the closest thing. It's the closest thing that I've seen to, you know, we have half marathons and 5k races and 10k races. And, and, and when I say people who don't care about results, those are great events. The 5k running race, because you have a thousand people on the start line and certainly the top 
10% are competitive and trying to win the thing, but the rest are just trying to prove something to themselves or create a, uh, you know, a positive effect with, with the training and, and, you know, become healthier. I hope, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to say confident. I'm, it, it's just my hope that people will continue to do that in gravel riding because I don't see that happening. I don't see somebody watching a Kermes or, or watching a, a Criterium or watching a time trial and saying like, that's my sport. I got to get into that. But gravel is, it's new and exciting and a little bit different with, you know, getting dirty and, and skidding around off roads. And certainly, I don't know how it is in Denmark right now, but there's there's a high aversion to cars. You know, being away from cars is is a popular way to ride a bike these days, just because there's so many incidents and accidents. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a rising tide lifts all boats. I think more people are going to be riding gravel. I think more people are going to be just participants, and more people are going to be competitive. And it's especially as the UCI has gotten into it, it's 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 really putting stock in this event in in this, this genre and saying like this is legitimate yeah and also um, i used to do ironmans back uh, a few years ago um, before i started racing gravel and it reminds me a lot of uh, like the good times doing that uh, because it, that was also just mass participation events and we had uh, very fast guys at the front. Uh, you could uh, race right alongside the pros. They just maybe had a head start of five minutes or so. And yeah, uh, yeah. I, I feel like it's the, the same with uh, with gravel. And then you hit the finish line and uh, the fast guys and the slowest guys, they, they did the same thing. It just, you know, quite as long. But, but yeah. in, uh, in some ways that doesn't even matter because you, you did the same thing. That's uh, it's like, the real difference compared to uh, like normal road racing or like you said, time trialing or watching a mess or a crit race, that's not, it's get that to be something people can participate in. They can watch it and have a fun thing. Right. And like be part of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you got the, the, are they called sportives? I mean, the, the Tour of Flanders sportive the day before and thousands of riders will go do that or, or Strade Bianchi or whatever it is. Yeah. I think you're right. There's really something unique and interesting about doing it the, the same day as the pros or lining up with the pros and doing it then. And certainly, <laughs> certainly the pros are going to do it a lot faster. Um, so then an argument could be made. And I think you're seeing the rise in popularity of the shorter events. You know, maybe the two, the unbound 200 is taking place, but the unbound 100 has become, I think their most, most populous event because racing five hours sounds even more sane than racing 200 yeah. or sorry racing yeah racing 100 miles is it's smarter than racing 200 which is also just a testament that there is so much gravel going on i think european gravel is going to have a different taste and flavor than than north american even within north america the stuff that's on the east coast near us is much shorter it's usually 100 kilometers or less and really dynamic and all through the woods whereas you go to the middle of the country or out west it's these enormous races you know 200 plus kilometers with not a whole ton of technical difficulty so yeah. i mean no different than so, yeah, the races yeah. around you are maybe a bit like the races in you have in, in europe with like the, the most of them are like 150ks or so at least uh, the uci uh, events and yeah. uh, i at least from from what i see when i watch kind of body coverage that comes from from a race like it unbound it looks yeah. a bit like it's just uh, a long time just riding just straight ahead uh, into the window maybe with the wind in your back and 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 not too much on uh, i did a race in in the netherlands uh, this uh, summer and I, i'm quite sure we didn't like once we did 2k without you know 90 degree corners and, yeah. and it was com it was changing all the time. It was and it was uh, like hard packed uh, gravel, and then it was mud, and yeah. it was so crazy. It was not, you had to be like completely focused all the time, otherwise you'll be in the bushes or something. Yeah, no, that sounds like the the New England, the East Coast stuff. Yeah, much yeah. more dynamic. Cool. Well, uh, 
I think, uh, do you think, uh, have you thought about trying uh, traveling in Europe? I would, yeah, I would love to. Um, I did the Rift, I want to say in 2019. Yeah. Um, so that's the closest that I've gotten to European gravel riding. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really cool to see how quickly it's it's really started to boom. Um, I mean, I'm friends with Lawrence Tendam, who, I mean, I think he's been a huge part of the introduction of gravel to the Netherlands, you know? I mean, I remember talking to him in the late 2010s, and he said, we're just not competitive. Like, you might have these these off-road events, but they're just, they're rallies or they're, they're there's no competitive element to them. Um, and now how quickly gravel racing has 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 entered europe um so yeah i would love to it's a little bit easier said than done yeah, uh, yeah. The it's family. a bit more travel yeah yeah you can you can take your your uh, the van out here that's for sure. exactly well that would be amazing i mean if we could ship it across yeah 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 do a dream yeah cool well uh ted we just uh did an hour and uh time it's been Great to, to get to know you and, and cool to hear some stories. Very nice. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for reaching out. Um, maybe someday we'll line up at the same race together. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. Nice.